Hi, this is Ben Thompson, the author and founder of Stratechery. Welcome to a special interview edition of the Stratechery Daily Update podcast. There is a transcript of this interview in the show notes of your podcast player and on stratechery.com. Now, here's today's Daily Update. This Daily Update interview with Ethan Sherwood-Strauss was published on Thursday, April 16th, 2020. Good morning. Today is going to be a very busy day on Stratechery. First is this week's interview with Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. More on that in a moment. Second, the Stratechery podcast service was updated overnight. Everything seemed to go smoothly, but from what I've seen on Twitter, some folks may have received some stray notifications or downloaded an old podcast or two. Thanks to that update, Stratechery will launch a new feature. There will be a free version of the Stratechery podcast that includes weekly articles and can be updated in place to include the daily update. This doesn't necessarily concern you directly, as you are already a subscriber and have had access to the Daily Update podcast for two months, but now you can tell your friends. Look for a post, but no email for subscribers, in a couple of hours. Third, there will be a second Daily Update interview about some embargoed news that will be available at 2 p.m. Eastern. I will email you again at that time with the news and transcript. This is, needless to say, quite rare. I believe this is the first day Stratechery has had multiple posts since I launched the Daily Update back in 2014. Don't worry, I don't expect it to become a habit. On to the interview. An interview with Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. To call Ethan Sherwood-Strauss a beat writer is, in my estimation, a disservice. Strauss is a writer, and an extremely good one at that. Strauss works for The Athletic and primarily covers the Golden State Warriors, after previously doing the same for ESPN. Strauss also hosts the House of Strauss podcast, which I appeared on last October. The occasion to interview Strauss was the publication of his new book, The Victory Machine, about the rise and fall of the Golden State Warriors dynasty. While this may seem to be more in the vein of no-tech Ben than Stratechery, what I found compelling about the book is that there is basically zero discussion of what happens on the court. Strauss is fascinated by everything else, from sneaker deals to social media, and the story he tells is one in which the internet really has, again, changed everything. On to the interview. I'm I'm very intimidated. You know, you've got you've got some some fairly smart customers. I'm but a mere sports writer on this, so uh, I'll try to rise above my station. Well, I'm here with uh, Ethan Sherwood Strauss. You you do share a locale with a good portion of my listeners, being in mm. the Bay area and whatnot, and a sporting interest because while this is not an NBA pod, this is not hosted by No Tech Ben. Uh, you, there are a lot of Warriors fans uh, in in the Stratechery user base, so uh, they they will. It, it, to the extent we touch on that, they will enjoy it. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's that's good to hear. Yeah, I, I actually considered doing a chapter of this book, and it just didn't necessarily line up about how so much of the world's economy was probably decided courtside and in the bridge club of Oracle Arena. I mean, now it's Chase Center, but I don't know if the titans of industry are showing up there like they used to. I, I would go to the bunker suites that were the expensive luxury lounges that theoretically um, you know, everybody in tech who was making money would be in, but this season strangely empty for some odd reason, Ben. I don't know why. So, so the book we're referring to is uh, just released yesterday, uh, The Victory Machine, which the the making and unmaking of the Warriors di- dynasty. And this is usually not a book review uh, pod, but there was a couple of reasons. That, so I thought it'd be interesting to talk to you, Ethan, is first, the book is very, very interesting in that it's a book about basketball that is not about anything that happens on the court. Like I was that a, it seems that was clearly sort of an explicit choice that you didn't really talk about any, any like basketball plays other than like Steph Curry getting hurt. 
Yeah, well, I think it's because the fan, for the most part, doesn't need a lot of help consuming basketball, you know, to a certain extent. And I think people like reading about what their team did, what makes them tick. But if we're talking retrospect, if we're talking a book, it seems at least with the NBA, we're more drawn to the Greek tragedy of the personalities. So much of the literary NBA seems to revolve around how teams break apart, how these dynasties break apart. Uh, Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam is not about the Portland Trailblazers coming together to win a championship. It's about the dissolution after they win a championship. When people talk about Shaq and Kobe with the Lakers, they're not talking about the synergy that those two players had together. They're talking about the strange Greek tragedy of two of the best players of that era eventually getting sick of each other, their egos not being able to sustain the dynamic any longer and breaking up before they had to. And right now, there's a lot of interest in The Last Dance, the documentary about the Bulls, which is about the last season when the Bulls decided that they were going to break up no matter what, even if they won the championship, which they did. So for whatever reason with basketball, uh, that seems to be the interest when we look back at it. It's more about the personalities and why the personalities are not properly satiated uh, than it is necessarily about why a pin down screen worked at a particular moment. At the same time, though, the most gripping parts of your book are when the Warriors are falling apart. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm wondering about that. I'm thinking about that. Uh, it, yeah, I, I think it's good to capture some of that too because there is this creeping determinism dynamic where whatever happens in sports, we convince ourselves we saw coming. I mean, that's we do that with everything. I mean, you're seeing that in the news where people are pretending like they saw uh, the coronavirus pandemic unleashed in a way that they were not talking like in February or in January. Um, and we do that in sports, and sometimes we lose some of the drama that actually existed. There's this idea, especially with the Warriors, the super team, well, of course they were going to win all the time. And we lose track of how you know, they, they were down by double digits uh, going into the second half in a Game 7 against the Houston Rockets, and that was not this last season where they got so injured they fell apart but there were there were times where it looked like it was going to break apart and for the sake of posterity maybe it is good to capture some of that because we do forget and i think that might be something that draws people to again the aforementioned bulls documentary where we look back on it of course michael jordan is a superhero of course and he's going to win you know every like six out of six that's how it goes Uh, that's not how it was experienced at the time so uh, one thing that I write about, broadly speaking, is, you know, cliche, but, you know, the effect of the Internet uh, on the world. And it's interesting because I think you have a unique perspective in three parts. And so I kind of want to go through go through each of those. So, so the first one is kind of you personally. Where did you write? Where did you start writing about the Warriors? Where are you now? Like, uh, I, I'm curious about this progression. Well, before the writing started, and I think it probably started at least the writing aspect just at the college paper at at UC Berkeley. I mean, I would say Cal for the Bay Area people, UC Berkeley for the people outside the Bay Area. But my first job was just a low-level MBA PR job. I had a friend who knew of an opening, and I think like a lot of like a lot of people who just like sports, it sounded cool. I, I I said, you know, hold up on maybe doing the law school thing or something that actually made practical sense. You're telling me that I can work in the MBA offices on Fifth Avenue? That sounds incredible. Well, my job it wasn't that incredible. It was wake up at four a.m. every day, read literally 
everything that's written about the NBA because you could actually do that back then. It was actually possible in 2008 to read literally everything in every newspaper that was written about the NBA that day and then send a memo to David Stern on who he needed to kill, I, I suppose. I mean, I don't know what he did with the memo <laughs> of my summaries of who said it's, what. It's, it's a good default, a default assumption. Yeah. Well, I assumed something was happening there. And so that was my job. And it was, I don't even know how it was legal. It was seven days a week. It was frankly pretty miserable, but I got exposed to a lot of NBA writing. And I thought to myself, man, I mean, this seems like a pretty cool job. I mean, these guys, they get to go to games for for free. They get they actually get paid to do it and they to watch basketball. And they're not like this isn't like what I'm going through where I'm just holed up in a, you know, cruddy New York apartment and you know, doing this every day in this monotonous way, they're having experiences. So I think that germ of an idea led to, um, eventually I couldn't take it anymore. A friend of mine had a, you know, a room available in Oakland. I wanted to go back to the Bay. I wanted to go home. I was sick of just coldness in general. I know New York's not as cold as some other cities, but I'm originally from San Diego. So I'm weak. Okay. I'm weak. I'm weather weak. So I needed to just get back to the sun. So my, my, Wisconsin, my Wisconsin roots are, are laughing oh, yeah. at you. Oh yes. You're mocking me. Mostly and, mocking. And, and, That's right. Mostly mocking. Well, deservedly so. Right. Um, but uh, I wanted to go home. I put in my two weeks, but the last thing I did was I was to shepherd around whoever I believe the number five draft pick was in 2009. I think it was number five. Um, I I would have to look that up. And whoever it was going to be, my job was to be a guy wearing a headset in a suit at Madison Square Garden who must force this player to be named later through three hours of interviews because there's this car wash at the NBA draft where they take this young man and they just force him through just this conveyor belt, this factory conveyor belt of interviews and not only interviews, but going into this odd room with landline phones where he must call up the team who has drafted him and the general manager and have a very awkward conversation. Well, the expectation was not that I would have Ricky Rubio as the guy to shepherd around. In fact, they actually gave uh, the slots before me to two women who spoke fluent Spanish. To my great shame, even though I'm from San Diego, I do not speak Spanish. And lo and behold, Ricky Rubio shockingly fell to number five. And so I had to just take this terrified teenager uh, from another continent. And he kept asking to be with his family. And I kept shaking my head and saying no and forcing him to the next interview and the next interview. And I was sitting next to him when he called up Glenn Taylor and David Kahn and had the most awkward of it felt like being there on a on a on a date going wrong because I'm sitting next Which to him. Which is he's on the it's phone. a pretty accurate depiction of what happened. Yeah, yeah, it's it was it was a protracted date gone wrong where, you know, the way it works for those who don't follow basketball. But when a player is in Europe, he needs to get out of his original team contract and. He, that's something that he has to agree to. You know, he's not going to be just shipped off to the NBA without that. And he did not want to commit to that because he did not want to go to Minnesota. And he kept saying to me, um, hey, I hear it's a uh, very cold. It's cold. And for whatever reason, I felt the need to defend Minnesota. I was just saying, uh, people are nice. Like, I, I don't know. I'd never even been to Minnesota at that point, but I'm just, I don't, I'm trying to sell them on it and I'm there and I feel just this strange fly in the wall experience of Ricky Rubio's NBA career getting off 
uh, on the wrong foot. And so I just got back home that night. I wrote down everything that had happened, uh, wrote it all down, worked on it the next day, and then forgot about it for about a year. And then thought to myself, well, this would be funny to send off to somebody. I sent it to the Free Darko blog. They posted it. It went viral or whatever the version of viral was that day. It was the first thing I ever wrote that somebody other than my immediate family probably read. Um, and that got this all that got this all going, I think. That gave me the confidence to think, okay, maybe if I am party to a story that's interesting, I can craft it in such a way and do something with all of this. And it begat writing about the Warriors, which begat freelancing for ESPN, which just turned into whatever it is that I do. Well, those steps are interesting. So when you started writing about the Warriors, was that for, again, was that for a personal blog or was that for another site? Uh, That was the Warriors World blog. I'd been leaving comments on the Golden State of Mind blog back then. I was just a disheveled, beleaguered Warriors fan watching terrible basketball, thinking Anthony Randolph might be good. And it was just a little side hobby. But uh, Rashid Malek, who ran the Warriors World blog at that time, said on Twitter that we were looking for writers. And at that moment that I had just moved back. I had just, uh, I, you know, not just moved back, but there, there wasn't a whole lot going on. And I thought, well, you know, I enjoy writing about basketball. Why not? What I couldn't have predicted is a few articles in, Rashid was no longer babysitting me. He was just saying, post the article when you want. And the Warriors were so desperate. Nobody was covering them. They were completely uh, woebegone, total laughing stock. And they were saying, fine. They're one of the few teams saying, fine, bloggers, show up, show up to the arena. And I would walk into the locker room and I would see Marcus Thompson uh, back then of, uh, God, was it the East Bay Times of the Bay Area News Group? And there was C. Rusty Simmons. And then there'd be a tumbleweed blowing through and nobody else, maybe a cameraman. So it was a great place to learn on the job in a very bizarre very bizarre kind of job where I would make stupid mistakes. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, everybody else, there was a path. And I think that path has been, that path has been taken away where they would cover high school football and they would go on up the ladder. I knew none of the lingo. I knew none of the, the etiquette. I would do stupid stuff like taking a picture of the plays on the whiteboard in the locker room with my phone. And I got pulled aside by the PR guy and he said, we're going to, you're going to be banned from the league forever. If you do that again, just so you know, I had no idea. So I thought that was just a great experience to make mistakes in total obscurity, as opposed to what I do now, which is to make mistakes uh, in, in public. So then from there, you started freelancing for ESPN. You started working there. What was it like going to such a massively larger platform like that? Um, It was completely mind-blowing. Very serendipitous, but I was a little bit starstruck, frankly. Um, I always felt – I make the analogy that sometimes when you're really hungry, you open up your pantry and there's nothing really there. But you see "Mm, there's some stale almonds there. I'm like, okay, I can eat some stale almonds. It's what's here. I felt that way with ESPN where the Warriors suddenly got good. Okay, who do we have on the scene? Well, really nobody. Everybody we have who's anybody in the West Coast uh, is down in LA and we could hire somebody for a lot of money or tell somebody in LA to move and uproot their whole life and go to the Bay or we've got this kid out here. He's written some articles for us. Uh, they weren't disasters. We can pay him a relative psalm. And why not? And I think I was that guy, but it was just crazy to suddenly 
the suddenly I remember in the first Warriors playoff run, it was my job to cover whichever team, uh, whichever team lost. And Jay Adonde would get the column for whichever team won. And I'm just looking, I mean, whenever I'm talking to him, J.A. is, he's talking to me like we're teammates and what are we supposed to do? It's like, okay, you do that. And I'm just looking at, you're J.A. Donde. I see you on television. This is very strange. <laughs> it was something that it took some getting used to, to uh, to know the people there as, as human beings and to just get over that part of it. Um, but yeah, I, you, you had to get used to the idea that you had more of an audience. The stupid stuff you say on Twitter could actually come back to hurt your company. Um, all of these were mistakes are probably made here and there. Um, but it was just, a, it was a great experience. It was definitely a great experience at the beginning, at least. Do you talk about the ending? Or are you allowed to talk about the ending? I think so. I mean, I don't know as much about the ending, um, as maybe some other people know, uh, there was this sea change, this, uh, the, the, this, uh, changing of the guard, uh, at ESPN in the NBA section, especially, I think it was perhaps influenced by a lot of machinations at the top. And I remember there's somebody, I don't want to out who it is, but there's somebody at ESPN who says, if you don't like your bosses, don't worry, they'll be gone in six months. Uh, there's a lot of upheaval over there, and I'm assuming it's not going to stop considering everything happening with Disney currently with what's going on in the world. So there was some organizational upheaval, and uh, my boss, who I guess you could say he was my rabbi in a way, who sort of brought me on, uh, he got fired. I heard about that earlier in the day in the, I think, April of, man, was it 2017? Um, I heard about it early in the day and I went, oh my God, my head's spinning. I didn't expect, he, he was doing a great job. I didn't expect him to get fired out of nowhere. It was uh, Henry Abbott, by the way. Um, and then I got a phone call later that day um, and I was told that I was being laid off, which was very surprising uh, because it was the middle of a playoff run. I was covering the Warriors. Uh, they, I think, had just beaten the Blazers. And it was just completely shocking. And it was also shocking because there was about a year and a half left on my deal. So you couldn't, I couldn't really understand where the, where the savings was in all of that. It, it, it felt like um, it felt political. It felt similar to when the general manager gets fired in the NBA and then the coaches, is, uh, the coach will get fired. He needs to have his own guys. It felt like one of those situations, but people ask me about it and ask me if I was targeted or if it had something to do with criticisms that I had made in the future. I mean, not in the future. That's ridiculous. I can't I, physically, it's <laughs> incapable of incapable of doing that. It's not a Rick and Morty episode, but criticisms I had made of the past, uh, specifically of Adrian Wojnarowski, because he was the guy who was brought on um, and given a lot of latitude to control coverage. And frankly, I have no idea. You know, I wasn't in the room when they made these decisions. But whatever happened, happened. And I'm happy with the outcome because it led to me coming to the athletic and having the best job I've ever had. So whatever happened, I don't So why is it the best job you've ever had? Like, what's the difference of writing for a big ad supported? company like ESPN versus a subscription company like The Athletic? Like, what, it, it sounds like it's better. I mean, like, what, what what makes it good or bad? Well, can I curse on your podcast? Is that is that something I can do? Go ahead. There's just less bullshit. Less bullshit. The idea is, look, we have a very tangible metric of success. You're going to get there if you write good stuff. 
if people like what you're doing, they're going to subscribe and they're going to give us good feedback versus when it's ad supported. And this is only an aspect, one aspect of the difference between working for ESPN versus The Athletic. But ad supported, you're almost trying to trick people with clickbait. You're incentivized to do it. And there's a lot of great work that happens over there, a lot of very talented people. But it's just not it's not one to one in that way. It really feels like at the athletic, and I'm not trying to sound like a company man, but it's just true that when it's subscriber based, it seems like you're more incentivized to create a quality product befitting of somebody paying you money than when it's ad based. That just seems to be the case. And then additionally, and this doesn't really have a lot to do with the ad-supported versus subscriber uh, dichotomy. Uh, ESPN is just such a big shop. It's just one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. It's not nimble. And so that lack of communication is either going to overburden you or it's going to underburden you. You're either going to have all you can eat or you're going to starve. What I mean by that is you're either going to give the signal to producers on the TV side that you're available to do TV hits. And so what's going to happen is they're going to tell you, okay, we're booking you for the nine o'clock sports center and the 12 o'clock sports center and the three o'clock sports center and the six o'clock sports center and the nine o'clock sports center. The conditions that Charles Barkley I'm paraphrasing here says I went to bed watching Stephen A. Smith and I woke up and Stephen A. Smith was on my TV. Uh, they, they will just, just bleed you in this way. And they will ask for a bunch of different things because again, it's a big shop. Nobody really is in control in a way, and they're all asking for whatever's going to help their department. And I'm not saying this to be insulting or to, you know, really badmouth them. I think it's just the nature of being a company that has grown so fast and is so big and has so many, uh, so many departments and so many aspects. And it's the TV and it's the digital. And I think what what, what ends up happening is, I mean there's a lot of overhead and it just, it, it's unwieldy. It's just very unwieldy. And there aren't too many people I know who work over there who are happy. I mean, I hope this doesn't come back to bite me. I'm just being real. I hope it doesn't screw up a chance to come on one of the TV shows, but there just aren't a lot of people I know at ESPN who are as, as happy as the people I know who are working for subscriber-based services. Well, you're obviously speaking speaking to the choir here. Uh, but what was mm-hmm. it like writing a book, though? I mean, that's something that I've resisted. Obviously, lots of folks have asked me if I would ever write a book. And I, I've kind of a, have the mindset of, well, one, I don't have bandwidth because I'm writing a lot these days. But two, the, the sort of way that a blog or a website is alive and you can say one thing one day, you come back the next day and say, whoops, I was wrong about that. This is actually what it is. Versus the sort of like finality of a book being published, you know, which is exactly what you're going through right now. Did that change how you thought about writing or am I overthinking this? Um, I don't think you're overthinking it. I think the bandwidth question was one that was real. Um, And I had those fears of robbing Peter to pay Paul. And the way I dealt with it was trying to make the book more of a first person journey than the typical article I would write for The Athletic. And in that way, I could know when I was doing book voice versus when I was doing article voice. Otherwise, I think I would have lost my mind completely and just not been able to do it. But it was it was hard in that respect. Even if it's not the longest book, and I think it's 224 pages, the idea of writing on the same subject material that I was writing for the aforementioned subscription service where you do need 
to have quality and you can't just come with some weak stuff. It's not going to go well for you. I, I think that it was a big challenge. And one of the reasons why I agreed to it and I went through it all is I was too stupid to know any better. Um, I think <laughs> fools rush in where angels fear to tread or dare not to tread. I cannot remember how that fools rush in. Basically, I was the fool who rushed in. And you had a great – well, you had a great thing to write about too. I mean it, one yeah. thing that is really striking about the book is your sort of discussion about social media. And there – as you note, there was this narrative for a long time that the social media is the best thing that ever happened to the NBA. It's great. Look at how popular they are. NBA Twitter is this amazing place, et cetera, et cetera. And you – or maybe a bit more skeptical about that narrative. Yeah, maybe I'm more of a declinist. I don't know. I think in some ways we might have too much we might we might have too much present bias. It might be based on the boomers. Everybody blames the boomers, right? Maybe they had a formative experience of being against the Vietnam War and being correct about that and their parents being stuck in their ways and stuck in their ways on some other very important topics. And maybe that's almost too formative. And we might even have too much of a youth bias where we regard anybody who has suspicion about the zeitgeist as an idiotic Luddite who's going to be cast in history's dustbin. That seems to be a, a, a trope that you have to almost apologize for how old you are by not liking uh, when you don't like a current trend. And I can't fault the NBA for going whole hog into NBA Twitter. And I think it's established in the book that the NBA did invest into Twitter and try to become a part of Twitter in the way in a way that the other leagues didn't. And they were trying to gain a first mover advantage. Again, I think it's hard to fault them. Who knew, right? Who knew? But I think what ended up happening is that Twitter has a lot of adverse consequences for its high profile users. And the NBA perhaps got high in its own supply. And it corrupted not only the minds of uh, the players, but maybe the product in general, maybe media where a lot of people are mistaking signal for noise as far as uh, – or noise for signal noise as far as – Noise for – I flipped those, yes. Um, I Yes, anyway. <laughs> anyway. Well, they, well, let's break those apart. I think there's, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. there's two parts, and you, and you write about both of them. So let's start with the – Let's start with the the players themselves. Like mm -hmm. this idea, and you know, one thing that I, I love the part where you talk about when you were in the take zone, which is when Kevin Durant called you out in person uh, for an article you had written when he had not been speaking to the media at the same time the Knicks were clearing cap space, et cetera, et cetera. And you wrote an article being like, it's, it's you know, can, can the Warriors and can Kevin Durant commit to the short term to win a title when clearly he's thinking about the long term? Very yeah. reasonable take. Uh, Kevin Durant did not like that take very much. And and you became the center of the cycle. Everyone was talking about you. Everyone was talking about this guy. Were you being fair or unfair? And you talk about how just overwhelming that is. And yeah. it's something that I, I, I've never been in that level of the take zone. But I've been a couple times where you know something blows up on Twitter and you end up in worlds you didn't even know existed and people talking about you. And you're just overcome. And it it's honestly – it, 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 it's, it's really hard to explain if you haven't been there, but it, it was one of the most upsetting experiences of my life. And it was a fraction of what you experience, which is a fraction of what NBA players experience. Yeah, it's real. You start getting paranoid. And I think that in general, happiness is probably inversely correlated with the time you spend thinking about how other people think about you. And the medium is geared in the opposite direction where you're almost incentivized to think that way. And then 
I think almost maybe celebrities are, are are canaries in the coal mine where they are experiencing all of this in a scaled up version, an order of magnitude above what we are. But as our lives become more and more integrated into these mediums, we're going to become more like what they are. Um, and all I know is the experience I had was not a pleasant one. It is not a natural thing to watch people on television argue about whether or not you're good at your job. And you can think that you would handle that well. You could think that you wouldn't take it seriously. But when you're actually in the take zone, as I call it, um, it is a highly unpleasant experience to go through. And it's inescapable. And the reason it's inescapable is if you want to live in the modern world, yeah, people go, you don't like what's being said about you on Twitter delete Twitter, you know, turn it off. Uh, if you don't like what's being said about you on IG, do the same. But when something is scaled up to that degree, um, it's just coming at you no matter what. I mean, I deleted those apps, but suddenly I had cousins, I had acquaintances, people I hadn't talked to since high school who were sending me text messages that Dan Patrick said this about you. Tracy McGrady said that about you. And you cannot run from it. You can't hide from it. And, you know, there are people who develop coping strategies. There are people who aren't as narcissistic, who learn to tune it out. But it's almost, you know, this is a weird place to take it off the top of my head. But I remember because a lot of people recently watched um, Contagion. And one of the scientists at a certain point says, this all happened because the wrong bat met up with the wrong pig. I sometimes think about that because maybe it's the wrong medium or the wrong moment of technology met up with the wrong psyche. And maybe this person would have been fine as a 1990s basketball player or as a 1980s basketball player. Yeah, you made that point that, that, you know, what it like Jordan was sort of like, it was amusing how competitive he was to a degree, right? And that, oh, look at, look at how, look at the slights that he took and what a whack, you know, Hall of Fame speech. But then you think about it, like, is that so different from Kevin Durant? Like, you know, (laughs) having, it might not be burner accounts on Twitter and going after the people that insult him. Like, that's, that's how these why is it wrong that he's wired that way well yeah and i mean that's this whole other issue where success often comes from people who are unbalanced and unpleasant in many ways and it accounts for a lot of their drive and maybe they're trying to maybe the insecurity is fuel and now we're almost having celebrity ruined for ourselves as a performance because we know too much about these people we want to believe that they are on a plane above ourselves that they are just resting on their laurels after their careers, basking in their glories. But now we can see, you know, name the celebrity. I mean, you can see like Cher has had these really insecure tweets. You watch Taylor Swift, the documentary about her. You watch somebody who's falling apart psychologically from the social media scrutiny. So not only is the social media pressure making them unhappy, um, it's making us bummed out because we see how unhappy it's making them. So that yeah, is the dynamic that we're true. in right now. So, the, the, so to tie this back then to the angle on the NBA, like wh- why might it be? Again, you know, I think it's still widely accepted and assumed that social media is good for the NBA. What is the argument that it might not be beyond the impact on the players' sort of psyches? Well, I think the biggest argument is that ratings have been down for a while. Um, and maybe that's not an argument. Again, this is the signal versus noise question. But for all of the coverage of how zeitgeisty and fun the NBA is and how their players are just so culturally prominent, the fans don't seem to be as invested or interested. And you wonder 
if the league is chasing its tail and just constantly absorbed into whatever is getting play on social media, having that fill their debate shows, having that uh, be the content that they blast out there. And you know, we should be clear that ESPN is a major NBA partner. They're not just some uh, they're not just some news organization that is going to cover whatever it wants to cover. No, they have a vested interest in the NBA being popular. If you look back in the day, the NBC presentation of the NBA product was all about holding it up uh, with this gravitas. The Mark, uh, the Marv Albert introductions and the Bob Costas introductions, you feel like you're about to watch a battle of titans and it has this meaning and this gravity to it. Um, you know the the, the current. So, so this is really yeah. interesting. I, 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 I want to jump in for a second. The, yeah. the, the, sorry, you just you made me think about this, and maybe uh, this is what you're driving at. But it just occurred to me, you know, ESPN and all these companies don't necessarily make the most money on live sports because they have to pay a huge amount of money for the rights. Yeah, what is really good is when they can make money on cheap stuff <laughs> like yeah. sports center is cheap like that's why it was such first, a profitable thing for espn first take for a long cheap. time exactly all these talk shows are cheap and guess what the talk shows they they, they flourish not by breaking down plays they oh, flourish by it's, having it's a, controversy it's a withdrawal it's not an investment that's it's, right yeah that's right that's yeah, right i hadn't and, thought and, about and, it and so yeah. you're getting this vicious cycle where the league is in, you know, I'm sure some would argue that you might have played a part in this. The league is predicated yeah, in, in driving scandals, in things happening, and people talking about them. Or sorry, not the league. I should say like their largest channel partners. And by the way, so is social media. So are all the reporters of social media. They want engagement. They want likes. You know, and there are people on Twitter that break down plays. Guess what? They have like 6,000 followers, right? Yeah. Who has who has the millions of followers, the ones that break news? And that news is very rarely about what's happening on the court. But it seems like the NFL, maybe in its stodginess, has escaped a lot of that. And they have a bunch of products that are about investing in promoting the glory of their product. They have that amazing right. – NFL films, for example. Yeah, yeah, NFL films with the trumpets and the slow motion. And they've got that great yearly thing that they do where they have all the players vote on who the top 100 players are and have a bunch of guys actually in the league go, hey, you don't know why this defensive end is good? Let me tell you. In this game, week 13, he did this thing and they show the footage and you've got the mic'd up, you got that sound on the sidelines and you feel like you're there and it's about the game because that is principally what drives people to this. It's not about anything else. It's not that Nick Young is afraid of dolphins or whatever stupid story of the day. They want the games. They want that kind of drama. They want the idea that LeBron is marching into Boston with his legacy on the line in a game six. What the hell is going to happen? That's what they want. And it seems like for whatever reason, maybe because they need to keep making money off this cheap stuff, as you say, a lot of it is okay, what's the silly story of the day? What's on Twitter? Twitter's a good producer. It's a cheap producer. That's what's going to produce our show. Let's run with it. And the fans are getting tired of that. Well, the other thing that you talked about in your book is we think about LeBron James as being employed by the Lakers and previously is employed by the Cavaliers. But actually, LeBron James is employed by Nike. Yeah. And it follows that LeBron James incentive is not necessarily winning. It's winning in the service of selling sneakers, of, of selling, you know, you, you had that great anecdote about how LeBron and Kyrie suddenly materialized with the exact same shirt on after they, they won the title in 2016. You end up with a situation where 
the players are kind of in on it too. But then you get into their own vicious cycle where they're then miserable on social media because they're the center of conversation. Yeah, yeah it's that we 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 um badly crave connection. And even if we want so badly, if we're competitive to have that number one spot, um, it does, I think, end up in a Citizen Kane-esque way where even Michael Jordan is miserable. I mean, we clearly have seen that. Wright Thompson wrote about it beautifully. And he was somebody who did sublimate to a team and have some loyalty to a team still. Um, but yeah, the the corporate the corporate aspect, the sneaker aspect to me is fascinating. And I think part of why the players love the sneaker company or have a certain fealty to it is that the sneaker company is about promoting their individuality in a way that the team maybe isn't. And there's this thing to chase that they can't necessarily chase in a team where if you become the face of Nike, that's just so much bigger than anything else. I mean, that's huge. That means you're one of the most famous people on earth. That means you're, I mean, that's that, that that's just, that, that is rarefied air. And there's a Pareto principle there where the gap between being number one and number two is massive. The gap between being LeBron James at Nike and being Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant. is huge. And so this is so interesting yeah. because one of the things that strikes me about the NBA is the NBA is a real world example of an internet phenomena. But and you just articulated it, which is that the you know on the internet, if you are number one, you get such a scale advantage. It sort of builds on itself and it feeds on itself. You become bigger and bigger and more powerful. And that's actually what happens on NBA court, and that's what makes it very different from the NFL. Like realistically, only about five teams have a chance to win in the NBA every year. And that's because only like five players are good enough to carry their team to a title. Like, like the Delta between the best player in the NBA and say the 15th best player in the NBA is so much wider than in any other sport. You end up with the situation where the the returns become large. And and that happens everywhere. It happens in terms of sneakers. It happens in terms of social media attention. And it happens in terms of power. It happens in terms of how the NBA ends up marketing itself. Like LeBron James, again, great being the center of conversation everywhere. Is that good for the rest of the league, his players, or the league as a whole? Eh, Maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. And it creates crazy business dynamics too because suddenly you have – billions of dollars at stake in a guy's knee, right? I mean, you could make the argument that Michael Jordan was as integral to building Nike into what it became as Steve Jobs was to Apple. Uh, But, you know, Steve Jobs didn't have a situation where if Bill Lambier hip-checked him, uh, then Apple would be torn asunder. It's it's crazy that these young men uh, doing a physical activity out there uh, have some sort of connection to the markets. I know I'm digressing maybe from the point that you made, but I'm just thinking about just thinking about the insanity of the sneaker business in general and how it's tied up and I think I make the argument in the book that Under Armour was badly hurt by Steph Curry sublimating his ego to a certain extent and accepting Kevin Durant into his team for the greater good of the Warriors to win championships, but that was in direct opposition to the forces we're talking about um, in regards to being the face of a brand and satiating your own ego. So is the NBA going to come back? (laughs) I mean, eventually, right? I mean, mean, look, what's interesting to me about the NBA and whether the NBA – uh, comes back quickly. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not an epidemiologist. I, I I don't know. But I think some people have been slow to catch up with the real dynamic, which is that the politicians are in charge, that this 
this current crisis has caused us to give up um, a lot of our guardrails because we just need something done and we need something done quickly. I'm not even criticizing. I'm just describing where we're at. And that creates a situation where governors have an authority unlike they've ever had. So yeah, you know, these NBA owners and Adam Silver, they can come up with their plans and they should come up with their plans. And like maybe Vegas, you know, maybe this month, maybe that month. But the bottom line is if the politicians don't want it and if they aren't incentivized to go along with it, it's not going to happen. And it can all be dashed by a new infection in whatever city. So I guess the only point I'm making there beyond that it's unpredictable and who knows, is that the NBA is no longer in charge of its own destiny, which uh, is true for a lot of could, could the NBA, right if, Could the NBA, if they were locked, lock, locked in a hotel and they had nothing but games, could that be the salvation of the league for all the for all the issues that you're oh, talking look at about? You, you want that Bucks championship. You said, you lied <laughs> to me, sir. You lied to me. You said that this was going to be not the sports fan you, but this was going to be the no, tech I'm expert, about, business expert it'll you. Be just, this is, you, you, you want that Bucks championship. The, <laughs> I see. I see, Ben. I see. It's okay. No, because it'll be all about the game. It won't be, it, it will be all about the game. There will be nothing else to talk about. I mean, I'll tell you what, I, I don't want them to do anything that would risk uh, people's lives, but God damn it, I'm going to be really fascinated by that experiment. I'm going to watch every game. If it's in Vegas, I'm going to try to get a credential. I'm going to drive there to see how they do it. I'm hoping that would be maybe the next book. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I just know that that could be an incredibly cool product. I just hope if it happens, it's done with some sense of responsibility. I, I remember there's something called the fraud triangle about why why fraud happens, where it's uh, you know pressure. I'm trying to remember what is the fraud triangle. Um, but the, the bottom line is skipping ahead to whatever the fraud triangle actually is. Um, let me let me quickly look that up. It's uh, pressure, opportunity, rationalization. That's when we see big-time corporate fraud. Those are the conditions that creates it. There could be something similar to this where it could create the dynamics where the league takes a risk with health um, in a way that it perhaps shouldn't because a lot of these owners are under pressure or at least a, a, a contingent of them are. They have been over-leveraged. You have uh, good luck Tillman Fertitta owner of the Houston Rockets, whose money is tied Levered up, up in, a bunch of restaurants. Yeah, restaurants. And uh, is he just casinos restaurants, but it's like hotels. casinos, hotels. Oof, that's a bad combo. Good luck, Tilly Fertitta. That's that's not a great combo. Hey, good luck, Mickey Arison, owner of Carnival Cruises, or I see the owner, CEO. I cannot remember the exact terminology, but that's his thing is Carnival Cruises. Good luck, Mickey Arison. Um, and there are probably a few others where – I think they just have to be desperate to get basketball back online because the money just dried up like that right after China pulled the plug on the NBA getting hundreds of millions of dollars every year. So even if these guys have a lot of money, um, to quote Patrick Ewing during the 1999 lockout, yeah, we might make a lot of money, but we spend a lot of money. And so I think there's some desperation to get some sort of playoff revenue from this season. Ethan, good talking to you. And uh, yes, we should do this again. I would love to, Ben. It was great to be on. Thanks so much for having me. The Daily Update is intended for a single recipient, but occasional forwarding is totally fine. If you'd like to order multiple subscriptions for your team with a group discount, please contact me directly. Thanks for being a subscriber and have a great day. Thank you.